Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's episode of the podcast, TikTok and Burgers, very diverse couple of subjects. What happens when governments and politicians try to control brands and business? And is a security threat enough by itself to close a company down or force it to sell, even if that company hasn't actually been proven guilty of anything? And on a completely separate subject, when we talk about franchise businesses, are diverse entrepreneurs at a kind of double disadvantage? How do we strike the right balance between bringing business opportunity to at-risk or diverse communities versus the financial outlook that those businesses in those communities actually face. This and other subjects we'll discuss on this episode of Diversity Remix. So Jesus, quite a spectrum of things. Yeah. And by the way, maybe you give us a little bit of a, give us a, a, a kind of a disclaimer on day and date of what we're doing because a lot of this TikTok stuff is going down in real time. Yeah, I think that's going to probably be a theme for us as we continue recording these podcasts is that in many cases, these are subjects that are just evolving, news that are still developing, right? So in the case of TikTok, uh, a lot of it sort of is coming out recently in the press, but just to give everyone the right context. So we're recording this on uh, Wednesday, September 2nd. Um, the reason why it's important to talk about this for in context of TikTok is that it was uh, it was believed that a deal could actually be done to sell the company, to sell TikTok uh, by September 1st, so yesterday, right? And obviously that hasn't happened, at least not, not as of the time that we're recording this podcast, but maybe it's, as a good starting point, and I'm sure people have heard about this, but... Why don't we give a little bit of the background as to what's been going on with TikTok, and then we can talk about sort of the implications that are that are all happening there. Uh, so just to give background, first is that you know President Trump signed an executive order that initially would bar U.S. businesses from transacting with ByteDance as of September 20th. Right? And ByteDance is the parent company. ByteDance, correct, is yeah. the parent company of of TikTok, right? Uh, but later signed a second order forcing basically ByteDance, the parent company, to sell or spin off. Um, it's U.S. TikTok business by November 12th, right? And that's basically what we're working through currently. Now, the reason given, and at least some of this obviously speaks to the provocative questions that, that uh, you brought up at the beginning, is uh, the reason primarily given is they see TikTok as a national security threat. And it's for two, for two main reasons. One is the amount of personal data being captured by the app. And then we could talk about some of the actual data that's being captured, or at least was reported to be captured. And the second piece, which is really this long-perceived notion that the Chinese government has complete access to any business operating from China and could therefore at any point access this data creating a national security threat, right? So those are the two main main sort of drivers as to why they, there's this concern. Now, to date, um, the main players who have been on the table looking to acquire TikTok are Oracle and uh, second been, been Microsoft, although recently, as of I think about a week ago, Walmart just joined the bid with Microsoft. So those are the two primary groups looking at this. There was also a dark horse bid by, this has had some controversy of its own, right? A yeah. dark horse, horse bid that was claimed to have been made by this company, Tr Triller, right. which is also a very fast-growing social um, sharing application. And they did, they claimed that they put in a bid with a um, kind of a financial partner out of London of $20 billion against it. They're a chief competitor of TikTok. Now, TikTok themselves say that like this didn't happen or right. they're, they're basically claiming it didn't. Well, there's all this, this there's positioning a lot of drama that is happening that. now. We'll talk right? about that because I actually yeah, think yeah, it's- Yeah, that's it's, a super interesting. So yeah, to, the, to that point, the deal size that is expected, is it is to basically fall somewhere between 20 to 30 billion, right? So if, you, if you're saying 20 billion sounds in line, at least to what's expected. 
Um, by the way, TikTok is also not, not taking this entirely quietly, right? So they've actually now sued the U.S. government, claiming there was a lack of due process before this executive order was put in. And then a brand new wrinkle, just in case this, this story wasn't already complicated enough, but as of Friday, August 28th, uh, Chinese officials introduced some new restrictions on technology, uh, technology exports that specifically could require Chinese approval for TikTok to sell its algorithm, which is obviously a very core part of their technology, right? So the, the, so the shorthand of that is basically like, if we sell this to you, now we're going to you know, keep the gravy for ourselves if we do, right? right? So it's like, well, then why do I want it? It, it just makes the whole thing super, super complicated. But I guess let's go back all the way to the top as yeah. it relates to the story, right? Yeah. So love to get your take, Charlie. When you heard for the first time about this executive order coming out, and really first of its kind that I can remember, where you're basically forcing a company that has legal operations in the U.S., right, that is not in any violation between the FCC, FTC, all the FCCs mm-hmm. in this case, um, but still being now what looks like either either shut down or sell, what was your first take on that? What is sort of you know what what do you think about when you heard that story? I, I it's interesting too because we had talked about this before, and I think for the last you know couple of years, and we can actually review a little bit of a timeline. You know, TikTok's been under scrutiny from a government standpoint, right? The the army and I forget the other branch of gov- of the military, but for sure the army over a year ago banned the use of TikTok. Um, uh, installs on military use devices, right? So like military issued mobile phones and that kind of thing. There was also some claims by the uh, FTC against TikTok for violations of, you know, COPA and other kind of federal restrictions. And there was a lot of concern by branches of the U.S. government, essentially, not necessarily, I mean, I guess the executive branch, but not necessarily reaching the kind of president's level. By the way, well, really quick well on, on COPA, just yeah. so those that may not know what it means, is the, Chi- the Children's Online Protection Act. Thank you. And, and the reason why that's an important element here is because the audience that's on TikTok is very, very young, right? It's probably one of the youngest ones out there in terms of social platforms. So one of the sort of controversies that has been around TikTok for a while is to what degree are they actively promoting, uh, marketing to, and allowing kids, underage kids, specifically kids that are under 13 years of age, to be on the platform. So that's been one of the items that has been also circulating for them uh, for a while. 100%. And look, so, so, I mean, to answer your question, to me, it was not a surprise. I know that specifically as it relates to Trump, a lot of people, you know, mostly on the left, but in maybe other quadrants, were saying this was a direct result of having been trolled around one of his campaign speeches or whatever where like a bunch in the TikTok community It was basically the first were rally buying, that he had. The rally, right. Coming first back rally out that of he had um, right I sort of post this this period of having to shut everything down for COVID and just to, to fill those in that don't remember this this happening it was basically reported that kids on TikTok very aggressively went on and signed up for tickets for the rally knowing that they did not plan on attending which basically led to some folks within the, uh, the the president's campaign basically brag about how many people they were expecting in this event, and then it turned out to be just not very well attended. Right. And, and so that created it, some sort of additional sort of layer of controversy. There was, of, and there was a lot of people, maybe with some evidence, who, say, who said that that's the reason that Trump is coming down on that. But then if that's the case at that point, you have to explain what's been going on for the last 12, 18 months with respect to TikTok and at least a number of parts of the government responding negatively to this. By the way, I just found the stat too. It was in February 2019 that the parent company, ByteDance, agreed to a $6 million fine to the FTC over, at the time, Musical.ly's illegal collection of PII, of personal identifiable information. Oh, interesting. So it was before, I guess, they did the rebrand to TikTok, but anyway, there's been at least for the last couple of years, a lot of concern around TikTok. Look, we've talked about this, and so you know my, my perspective on it. I'm like all in on the full-on deep deep state Chinese conspiracy theory Going on this. rabbit hole right in, away. In, in, in the sense that <laughs> like when you look at, at, at TikTok from a UX, UI kind of standpoint, I mean, this thing is just almost too good, right? It's like it, it is – I've described it as kind of digital heroin. Or a time machine, meaning that like you can spend 20 minutes on it and then you look at the clock and it's really been four hours. There is so much stickiness on this app that it wouldn't surprise me at all. It kind of appeals to my sort of like, uh, you know, fiction and novelist uh, inklings that there could be a whole slew of people in some 
intelligence factory dreaming up this app and using it as a way to kind of monitor their political enemies because the thing is just too damn good. And if you and look by at too it, damn good, like what do you mean by too damn good? And, and thank you for asking. So I'll, I'll tell you, too damn good in the sense that this company has, at least TikTok, this brand has scaled from an install-based standpoint more rapidly than any publicly available platform in the history of the world. So I'm talking about comparing it to the internet and Instagram and mobile phones sure. and cable t TV. If you look at the curve of all of these things and then you compare it to TikTok's you know, critical mass, reaching critical mass, the period of time that TikTok has achieved that and has been literally like 18 to 24 months, that they've gone from almost zero to this kind of critical mass uh, but don't standpoint. You, don't you think on that point though, if you were to go back the last, doesn't matter how many years you go back, but every time some of this new technology has come out, you could have made the same argument about Facebook. I think YouTube was, was also the, at the time. I mean, everyone kind of within their own period of time. And it's a combination of the right sort of new level of technology with sort of adoption, of user adoption just being a lot more easier to, to get because of other marketing means, distribution means, ability for things to go viral. That I could make that argument that, yeah, you know what? In 10 years from now, that whatever that next technology will also be the fastest one that ever happens to get to there's certain always like, gonna, yeah, There's that's, always going to be That seems to be the trend faster. that just happens across the board. Look, I think the adoption level is is one part that sort of raises my you know sense of suspicion. And again, I'm saying this kind of tongue-in-cheek. I don't really really believe that there's a layer of people developing this stuff. But just the, this having having a, been a user of the app and you know experiencing its stickiness and then looking at some of these adoption trends, right? Um, like, for instance, in 2019, actually, let me let me back up. In 2017, Musically is acquired for a billion dollars by ByteDance, right? And then consequently rebranded TikTok, which kind of matches one of the applications that they were using in China. That was in November of 2017, right? They acquired this thing, rebranded it TikTok. By 2019, less than two years later, TikTok is now available in 150 countries, 75 languages, and has recorded almost 2 billion downloads lifetime. And that's literally in 24 months. Now, bear in mind, 24 months is like shorter than your average car lease. Okay. So this is yeah, like, yeah, yeah. this is not a lot of time to do that. And so it's just something that we've seen that has completely become an almost overnight uh, you know, sensation. And I attribute that to the fact that the that the application is just designed in this way that is like so amazingly, you know, sticky. And, you know, so there's definitely been a lot of thought that's been put into this thing. Yeah, and, for sure. I mean, and I understand there's been a lot of engineering thought to it. But what I find interesting about that comment you're making, and I know it is your comment you're making you're making are a little bit tongue in cheek, but the reality is you're not the only one to feel that way. Right? You're not the only one to have this notion that there's something about this technology that is so effective at capturing that attention span of, especially this really young generation, that something must be up going on. Like something, something fishy is going on here, right? Now, if you compare what they're doing versus, versus all the other platforms, one argument that, that we could definitely make or that I would make would be that when you look at what drives a lot of the algorithms for YouTube, for Facebook, for Snapchat, it's all about time spent. As a matter of fact, there was very public... Um, uh, reports out, especially with Google, with YouTube as an example, where they really sort of made this shift to time spent, which is all about keeping you on the platform for as long as possible. So this notion of technology being built to capture your attention and capture for as long as they can be, like that's been around for a while. And I think all these social platforms that sort of they all have their own sort of their own nuance approach of how they do that. But that is the goal. The reality is that we've been fighting for attention, or technology companies fighting for for people's attention for a long time. TikTok just has to be really, really good at it. And I think what makes it interesting for them is they are the first, in my mind, like major threat to the very established company like Facebook, right? So Facebook has been the behemoth. Of course, you have, you have Google and YouTube. But as it relates to social networks, I mean, you know, I guess Snapchat would have been the last one, I guess, like, like that, in that in that sort of category. But I don't think nothing really compares to the kind of success that, that TikTok has had, even though in this early on, it got a lot of that comparison to Vine in some ways because of the very short form content, but they were just, they're just a lot better at it. They're much better at it from a development standpoint, from a marketing standpoint. And by the way, full disclosure, um, you know, at your previous role as CEO of Vertical Networks and in my lifetime, and in fact, together you and I have done deals with TikTok. So sure. I want to make sure that people are, we're not just, you know, kind of on the sidelines slinging mud, right? We're, we've, 
in full disclosure, been involved, have seen some of the insides of, of you know, the inner workings. Uh, you know, we've also met Kevin Mayer, the uh, the CEO of TikTok for about a minute and a half. Um, <laughs> now ex-CEO. When he was at Disney, now ex-CEO, which we also should, you know, should have a conversation about. But yeah, I think you're right. They have, you know, definitely maybe perfected is too strong a word, but have gotten much better at driving that time spent and that usage, which then is what the algorithm incents and right. rewards and what the whole platform is basically built around. Yeah, so so I think part of, when we start breaking down what are some of the elements that have contributed to this situation currently with with between, I would say between TikTok and, and to some large degree President Trump because of the executive order. One is this, this sort of massive success in a very short period of time that is almost a little bit hard to explain how good they are at it, right? I think the second one is definitely related to what data they're actually collecting and to what degree they're keeping this, right? And what's actually available. There, there, is a, there was a report by the Wall Street Journal, and I think it happened last week, I want to say, or it could have been earlier this week, I think on Tuesday, uh, where TikTok was apparently collecting some of its users' MAC addresses, which are unique, and they basically are fixed identifiers that are assigned to mobile phones and other internet connection devices that basically allows them to be able to track physical whereabouts of a person. Now, you know, we're not fact-checking how accurate that, that, that data point is, but if that is the case, obviously that's super concerning in terms of what is it that you then can infer, understand uh, about actually being attractive behavior, especially when, uh, according to this report, even in those cases where, where a user had actually opted out of all manner of other ad-related trackers in their phone settings, right? So this ability to kind of go around phone setting tracking uh, or phone settings to still be able to track the person is super concerning. But I, I was to say, even with that, with that point, this issue around personal identifier information is something that the whole internet has struggled with quite a bit. Um, there's new regulations on that. And all the social platforms have all struggled to one degree or another. So when I hear this, it's not that I don't believe that there's concerns for sure, but what makes this so specifically unique? Because that was the starting point of the conversation. It was like, no, 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 you're capturing so much data that we're very, very concerned about what you're doing here, even though you can make some similar arguments about Facebook, for sure Facebook, because they got in trouble for that before, maybe YouTube. Think about all the other ones. I think the answer is really simple. At least 85 to 90% of the reason is the provenance of the company, meaning where is yeah. it based? That's a reality because you're right. I mean, a lot of this, um, the ability exists with all these other platforms. The risk, in right. quotes, exists with a lot of them. But the reality of it is, is that in those cases, we have at least some presumption of control or influence over the companies that have that capability because the lion's share are based here or they're based in countries where we have much better kind of diplomatic relationships. In this case, um, the, you know, the company is obviously based in, in China and it's pretty there's, – there's a good amount of evidence, um, you know, not just for this company, ByteDance, but any company doing business in China that you don't have as an entrepreneur or business owner the same kind of – control and or protections with respect to your technology. So even right. if everything that ByteDance is saying is true, meaning we're not we're storing all your data in the US, we're not looking at it in China, even if all that's true, I think the issue that the federal government has again taking Trump out of it and starting this a year and a half ago when the army and all right. these other things first banned it, I think the issue is that even if ByteDance thinks they're they're doing the right thing or are at any moment the Chinese government can say hand it over or whatever and that's the arrangement that these Chinese based companies in a way kind of have de facto just because they're based there yeah. and I think that's the thing that's driving it. And what, what I find really interesting about that what you just explained is that so it's all rooted in this in this basically the main reason ends up being a national security threat based on the idea of what could happen Correct. not what actually has happened because we actually don't know if it's actually happened or not. There is, to your point, strong indicators, maybe strong history of, of meddling from the government with, with companies and not having the same level of sort of separation of, of government and industry. But yet we're talking about this because literally is an example of government directly meddling with industry. Like it, it's, it's such a, to me, the irony of this, I find it almost a little bit funny is that yeah. we're talking about this, you know, banning this because of this potential threat of Chinese government impacting operations, influencing, accessing data. And the way that we saw for that is by the federal government immediately tapping into and through executive order, banning the operation and forcing the sale. Like what stops you from then turning around and doing that with any other company, whether it's U.S.-based or foreign-based? It actually doesn't matter because that notion of 
national security is such a, a blanket yeah. statement it's that basically, yeah, it's it, a, you uh, know, that that becomes to me a really scary thing. It, it it's like is. that's the reason why you have these different organizations like the FTC, like the FCC, that do have to follow a pretty rigorous process before they were to put in policy that affects everyone. And agree, based on that policy, you can apply you. to individual companies. Like that's the part where I, it's it's it is a little bit laughable to some extent because the the argument seems to be the direct sort of that same argument to be applied here. It, it's it's sort of we're 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 sort of talking to both sides of our mouths. I think I, I agree with you that all things being equal, we almost never want the government, specifically the executive branch, making a call on what businesses can or can't operate in the country. In fact, if you look at the history of fascism, the, t- the term fascism has become very well-worn, so much so that, frankly, I think it's lost its meaning. But if you look at some of the hallmarks of fascism, one of the hallmarks of fascism is you know, not so much controlling the means of production to the same degree that the, co- that the uh, communism does, right. but sort you know, telling you almost like, it's not that I'm going to tell you that you're going to be a street sweeper, but I'm going to tell you that you can work at one of these three companies. You get your pick. Like it's yeah, yeah, fundamentally yeah. the same thing. And one of the hallmarks of fascism is that, that you know, controlling of enterprise in, 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 that, in that way. So I'm definitely against that. Having said that though, and you nailed it, which is when national security is broached, the latitude that the executive branch has under any president, but I think, you know, it's, it's been it's, tested a little bit. <laughs> it's been tested for sure, yeah, but I think to the, limit, the I latitude think. is extraordinary. And if we want to make a change to that, we have to make a change to, you know, via the right branch, like you know, the the the, con- the Congress. We have to make a change to, you know, yeah, what the laws branch, are yeah. that the executive branch can actually right. operate under. And and just one thing, and this is not in defense of any particular administration. I would just say that the more advanced we get. The more connected we are, the more um, that sort of national security that threat, risk. yeah, it goes up. No, I I agree with you. It's, it's I can really see it from both perspectives, right? I understand the why. To your point, there was already some history here of being data concerns of what this app was actually capturing, right? And to what degree they were going to keep that data safe, right? Um, once again, the history with Chinese government that does meddle. I mean, the, I'm sure it was debated. I'm sure they would argue the other side, but. At least the perspective, I think, for most of the folks that are outside of, of of mainland is that they will agree that this is a country that tends to operate in that manner. That all makes sense. It does worry me, the president that we're setting here, of being able to directly impact a business. Because the reality is, for everybody else, if you're Snapchat, if you're Facebook, via Instagram, if you're Google, if everyone else, you got to be kind of loving this because you were getting your, your clock cleaned pretty good about this newcomer that, to your point, within a two or three year period, all of a sudden, massive share. I mean, I think if you're Snapchat, you're a little concerned. These guys have taken, they're basically that younger end of the demographic, which you were owning previously. They're they're sweeping that up um, and are doing a really, really good job of keeping engaged for all the reasons that we talked about. So to what extent are you in some way encouraging that? Or even if you're not publicly saying, I mean, behind closed door, you have to be pretty happy that they're getting this kind of heat from uh, from the president in this executive order, and to, to your point, the opportunity it creates for other folks like the, the company you mentioned early on, who would, even by simply putting their name in the hat, even if that bid is not really real, all of a sudden they could be seen as sort of that alternative, like someone that is in that position to sort of fill in the gap that potentially TikTok could leave upon having to close and or, or, or leave the country. And think of what the result is for TikTok, and I do have one other kind of more provo- provocative question to throw at you, but think about the result here is that because of this government intervention, the company sells, let's say Microsoft or some combination of Microsoft and Walmart, you know, buy this company. And let's say that the Chinese restrictions on the tech actually hold. So what they end up buying is some kind of like watered down version. Yeah, I, I don't think it'll happen. I mean, continue your Or question, if it maybe. happens for maybe less money, maybe it's not 30, right. it's 10 well, it or whatever have to it be, is. Right? It had to be a, some massive well, discount. Yeah, again, and to, and to it, what degree you say, well, what is that even worth it anymore? Right? If you don't have the algorithm, if fair. you don't have the secret sauce, fair. Oh, well, because people glued for for hours upon hours, That's right? my is point. it even worth it? But put the purchase price aside for a second. What I'm trying to, the, the point I'm trying to make is that what is the now consumer experience as a result, which is a kind of watered down, less effective, less interesting, less fun application, right? So in that scenario, and let's just put, you know, I'm going to ask you my provocative question in a second, but let's just assume that social media is good, is a good product for a second. The customer ends up with something that's not as good as it was because of the government's intervention, right? They force the sale, right. they end up buying this thing that's kind of a shell, it's kind of crappy, 
Maybe it lives for a little while longer, and then it just ends up dying or whatever it is. The customer loses. And I think that's an important thing when you think about government intervention in the private sector like this is that oftentimes it's not to the consumer's advantage, which is why, again, 99 times out of 100, I'm going to be against it. But the question of national security comes in, and then here's a provocative question, right? The provocative question is, does the definition of national security in time change? And I'll give you an example. There's increasing evidence social media applications are, are a big contributor, right, in time spent on screens and all this other stuff, to a lot of really negative data that's coming out on Gen Z and Gen Alpha, right? So mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, yada, yada. Now, I, I don't think it's just that. I think there's a number of factors, but I do believe that that can contribute. And yeah. I'll give you my thoughts on why in a second, but I'd love your response on, do you, can you see a, a time or a place where that's, National security doesn't necessarily mean a bomb, but it can mean sort oh, of like yeah, something sure. in your country that makes your people And, and worse. That are, that's already happening. It's happening right now. I mean, the reality is technology, for all the benefits that it provides, it definitely, to the, little thing, the point you were making earlier, creates the, the opportunity for much more high risk in terms of how can you harm a country very quickly, right? Now, one of the things that we're dealing with, again, as a matter of fact, I think it came out in the news, I want to say earlier this morning, is that there were a couple of sites that were shut down by Facebook because the FBI reported them as being uh, one of the sort of fake news farms coming out of, of Russia that was specifically targeting more liberal Democrats and in, in, in giving them fake news that were very like anti-Biden and, and, uh, and Kamala, right? As, uh, as having them being overly conservative, right? Um, I may be having that backwards in terms of what was over liberal or overly conservative, but the, but the point is that this whole notion of meddling with elections is something that came up in the last election, right? Proving that Russia was playing a role there. Uh, they played a role in terms of some of the emails that got released from Hillary. Um, it sounds like, once again, this is happening again. And that is of national security. I mean, if we can't trust our election process, right? If it gets influenced in any way whatsoever by somebody else, it is that is a national security problem. It doesn't have to be, to your point, a bomb that goes off, right? Because obviously that's the, ma the, the ultimate destruction. But... All of these do become become risk. And look, is there a scenario where it's just for the pure data being available, even location data, it gets in front of the wrong hands and that's a problem? For sure. Uh, there was one that uh, came out probably a couple of years ago. I don't know if you recall this, but there is one running app that I use a lot, Strava. Right, I use it all the time. And this, for those of you familiar, it's one of these many performance tracking apps. And you know, one of the things that it does, and, and I don't turn it off, but it basically you're able to map exactly what route a person ran, right? And, and you're able to share that when you basically post your, your run times, et cetera. Well, there was folks that were using Strava that were basically some of the, the, the Navy, uh, uh, you know, some of the Navy people that were in, working in submarines using Strava. And what they found is that when they were posting their data, it literally was giving like a map out. The location of where they location, were in the ocean. A, where they were in the, of the, of the actual submarine, right? So you're giving both location of where they are and it became a big issue that they had to go and shut that down. But you can see that's a sort of a, it was a dumb, a sort of small, dumb example, but you can see how there could be massive national security issues related to some of this data being captured and shared and that's in cases where they knew they were sharing it right so they had to sort of basically talk to them as so not to do that anymore but what about in this case which is once again just referencing what the wall street journal you know, said about about tiktok and there's cases where you are actually tracking data without the location data without the user knowing then you are in trouble then you can see how one of the the, the, the you know the arms of the federal government fbi cia would have a big issue using the app if they're concerned that, that their location is going to be somehow tracked and then Location, and even else. behaviors, you know, tendencies, sure. like here's when you like to eat, here's when you like to talk, here's the things that are trending in popular culture. All of those things are data points that you can build campaigns around. Um, the Strava thing that you mentioned is interesting. I remember you and I were actually on a conference call, and the person who we had, we had basically just talked to for the first time, once you mentioned Strava, oh, yeah. by knowing your name, was able to go, oh, you, you run a six-minute mile. And I mean, you, for, for, you, yeah, within like seconds. You were, like, you were at like, I you felt know, stalked. Yeah, 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 exactly. That was to funny. me, it's yeah. like, you know, the closest I've ever been to being a runner is knowing you. So, <laughs> so for me, it was like a whole other world, but it was yeah. kind of crazy it was, it was, that some it was a stranger. Creepy. Yeah, a little creepy, actually, how quickly that happened. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a concern, right? And the other thing, too, is to your point, knowing people's behavior of what they consume, ability to influence what they consume next, I mean, that could quickly turn into an ability to radicalize people, right? That's a, you know, part of the issues that I know YouTube dealt with, right? This whole thing about going down the rabbit hole in YouTube and getting all of these, you know, uh, suggested videos, 
you know, it was proven for it. There's been reports that have been put out about some of the algorithms and why they had to change some of this is the fact that it was creating that kind of behavior of further radicalizing people that started to sort of go down a specific path of content. So you have to be very, very careful with that. Uh, you know, you talked about misinformation and the power that, you know, technology can have in the wrong hands or for the wrong reason. And I don't know if this is one of those misinformation things or just some troll trying to have fun. But even right now, if you type in Antifa.com, have you done this? No. Antifa.com, you, you should try it, but it redirects to Joe Biden's election site. <laughs> so I don't know if that's, that's somebody who bought the domain <laughs> and just yeah, is yeah, trolling. Sure it is, or, yeah. or it could be. It could no, be a Russian. I'm pretty sure it's one of those things well, where, you know, and just, by the way, there's other examples. I've seen the, the, the counter examples of those, which is like, I'm blanking right now, one, but this one like is really bad. Yeah, where it's 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 it, it routed back to a Republican, but I forgot who who it was. But it was something like that. It was, yeah, I'm not even sure. I mean, I find it hilarious. To be I don't think you can control who points to you on the, on the web. No, you can't. No, yeah. so that's why basically, as long as you have the URL, you could just basically be able to yeah. point to it. I guess yeah. you could find out who owns it and try to do something about it. I'm sure they're trying to do that right now. But it's fun for anybody listening. If you want to have a quick a quick giggle, um, that's one way to do by, it. By the way, and I think one thing that we didn't talk about mm-hmm. is um, the, the why now. With as it relates to that executive order, right? Because once again, we could justify one way or the other how much of a national national security threat is, and there's real concerns there. And and I think we can make the case that even historically, to your point, there was already a trend that was being that was being uh, attracted as it relates to having concerns around some of that security. But the the why now? Now you you touched on it a little bit by mentioning this event that happened in um, in um, this political rally that Trump had, and obviously there was a number of these kids that on on TikTok that you know pretty in a very coordinated manner, at least try to do their best to basically disrupt that process. And I'm sure Trump was not a happy camper from that, but that doesn't seem enough, right? And, and I think when well, you look we're at it- out, We're leaving out one, one important factor, and that yeah. was in April, of, um, if it, in April of last year, there was a big ruling against TikTok in India, and then subsequently the Indian government That's banned right. yeah. TikTok yeah, in the entire country- it. And look, I, I don't know exactly what the relationship is that Trump has with um, Modi, uh, their, yeah, their, Modi, their huh? prime minister, but it's it's pretty cozy, and I you think can so, see yeah. those guys going like, "Hey, I just did it," and this guy going, "Hey, I, I maybe I'll look into it." I don't know. I'm just saying that's a big thing for an entire country to go. And by the way, India's usage is no, was number one was in the number world. One, yeah, number in the world by like yeah, yeah. a country mile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about that is it sort of it opens a door as a possible route. To, of how to deal with with TikTok and how to basically, I see it more of a how to stick it to the Chinese government because once about I mean my my point of view as to the why now is that when you think about we're you know a couple of months away from the not from the presidential elections, um, I think one of the themes that that President Trump has been trying to hit because obviously there's a lot of stuff that has not gone well this year that directly impacts his ability to be able to get reelected. And one of the themes is to find who is the bad guy, right? And I think Trump, one of the things that, whether you agree with him or not, and I disagree with him, and almost 99% of the things that he does, what he's really good at is finding the enemy that people can rally around and, and pointing to someone else, right? And one of the enemies that he's already found and picked on is China. And a lot of it for a very good reason, right? The Chinese government has done a lot of things that definitely, uh, they're not always the, the, the best, most kosher player in the national or global stage, I'm sorry. Uh, but using them as the problem, as the root cause of everything that's gone wrong, as being the the root cause for coronavirus, as being the root cause for national security issues. So doing this, I think, is is part of this narrative that Trump wants to be able to push of saying, you see, it's all their fault, not my fault. It's all Chinese fault. And I'm going to stick it to them by taking this massive, successful company that is their company and shut it down to show them what, what we can do. And I, I, to me, that's at the end of the day. The biggest driver, yes, I'm sure that the, the, the thing with yeah, the with the rally, I'm sure it got under his skin. I'm sure, but that wouldn't be enough if if it was just that. I think you're right, and I think that again, now it becomes a game of back and forth, right? And we were joking; it's not TikTok; it's uh, tit for tat, right? Because right, now the yeah. Chinese government will come back and say, "Okay, sure, yeah, you'll you'll you can sell it, but you're going to sell this part. We're going to take the cream off the top, and you can sell the rest of it." Yeah, and so it ends up just being this kind of worthless back and forth. But I do think that to your point about Trump, which is a really important point, a nuanced one, is Trump is really good at narrative, really good at story, really good at the idea of protagonist and antagonist, right? And irrespective of your perspective on him, um, you're right that he does have that ability to kind of yeah. set, yeah, he set does. the tone on who the bad guy is, which then in turn enables you to coalesce, well, right, factors and, and, against and Usually against that. at the he does that as a way to deflect any kind of responsibility that he should be taking, right? So that's my sort of my negative point of view of why he does that. But the fact that he's good at it, 
For sure, right? So I think this is definitely part of that. In terms of who wins, though, but I guess that's, we haven't really talked about it. who wins in this in this scenario. We talked about there's obviously a potential that for those users that do use the platform of TikTok, and and there's a lot of them that do. Obviously, they lose out, right? Not having this technology or having some kind of neutered version of this technology, they lose out. Who possibly wins? An example of that is listen, Instagram and or Facebook and the strategy that they've done every single time is they don't lead, they follow. Fast they just, followers. Fast followers with a lot more skill, a lot more money, right? So they launched this product Reels about a couple of months ago, I want to say, and it's literally the direct photocopy or as best as they can photocopy of TikTok, right? And it's under the Instagram uh, platform. But that's a very interesting case. And I've seen it already. A lot of this TikTok content, people moving, literally taking, creating content on TikTok and copy paste, drop it into, into this Reels product. And you also have this up, again, up and comers, right? So think of yeah, this thriller, sure. which again, my conspiracy theory on that is, and by the way, I've also met those guys. Um, they were at a different company or a couple of the principals were at a different company that you and I had some interaction with at one of our last firms. But in any case, um, you know, my conspiracy theory on that one is what an amazing public stage, what an amazing platform to say, yeah, I'm going to make a bid too. Right. And, you know, TikTok is almost going like, who are you, little guy? Right, like, you? Kind of thing. <laughs> but they're like, here's a $20 billion right. offer. And the money's coming from some fund Knowing in London. Well that no one's going to get that. No one's going to, it's not yeah, good. But, yeah. but what a brilliant, what a brilliant if that's true, yeah. if that's Great truly marketing. what it is, like, for them. you know, they should take the money and like put it in their own accounts. Yeah, that's how yeah, good yeah. that is if that's what they did. And who knows, maybe we're wrong about that. But, um, but I think it also, um, you know, what it means uh, for, you know, for a number of people, I think from a consumer standpoint, assuming that it's a neutered version, I think it's a loss for consumers. Although, again, I strongly kind of caveat that because I believe that there's a whole nother show we should do on the kind of negative effects of a lot of these social platforms that are just now beginning to be manifesting yeah. in, in people. Like we're just getting like the little bits of the data and it's not a good picture. It's yeah, not a good look at all. Obviously the massive amount of screen time is just not healthy, right? No. I mean, there's all these downside implications about this of, of people that are just addicted to devices, uh, addicted to the social platform because they're literally are built to have you stuck on the screen. That's what they're, so they're for. One of the, and I agree with you, we could definitely do a show on that. Now, but I, I think one thing that also the one to, uh, completely gloss over is what are some of the benefits, right? And one of the benefits, and we don't have to get into the whole benefit conversation, but one that I, I personally found really interesting is that it's specifically unique to the TikTok environment is that one thing that makes TikTok sort of different from the other social platforms is this notion of taking an audio track, whether it be a song, whether it be someone's speech, et cetera, and creating content or enhancing that audio track through content, right? Um, and, it's be, and I think it becomes a really great place for discovery, which is very different from the other the other platforms. Now, some of this comes from its roots in Musical.ly, and Music was always a major part of it. And it became a uh, a way to uh, literally uncover new music. Um, there's like, um, and I'm, I'm blanking right now on the name of the song, but this this song that came out a few years ago, and they, and some kid went out, remixed it, put it on TikTok, and it blew up again. And so this this group, this hip hop group, sort of had like a whole second run associated with it because of this remix that this kid did, right? So it's a place of discovery. What I found personally really interesting is that there is this one comedian, and I'm blanking right now on his name. I had never heard of him, comedian out of Mexico City. And there is this one creator who basically, her entire channel is all about redoing his skits, right? And she acts it out, and but it's all his voice audio track. Now it's, it has me discovering this comedian that I've never heard of. I've gone back, I've looked for his, his stand-up specials. He has like two of them on Netflix. Would have never heard of this guy. And how I discovered him is through us, these little short bites of, of content in a platform like TikTok. And something that is, it is different from all the other ones, you know, YouTube or any of the sure. other ones. It doesn't yeah. have that same kind of, Look, of dynamic. The, the whole idea of discovery and the whole idea of being able to create in new formats and introduce new new types of Or have diverse voices, by the way. In that. Have I mean, diverse that's, voices. I mean, again, to the point on a global voices, the Indian community by a mile was producing more videos and spending more time on that platform than anybody else. And I actually had have seen a number of those kind of Indian uh, made videos and I don't know where else I would have ever seen anything like that. So there's definitely kind of like a global and kind of multicultural benefit, perhaps a benefit from a creativity standpoint, a benefit from discovery. But then the question is at what cost, right? Last point on TikTok, cause we got to change gears. Otherwise we're going to run out of time. Um, uh, last point on TikTok is Kevin Mayer, the ex CEO who was there for again, a cup of coffee and a half and you know, his kind of, uh, how he looks coming out of this thing. Right. And, 
I read a piece yesterday in The Wrap that talked about the fact that at the end of the day, he jumped at a huge job. You know, he got passed. He, I don't know if passed over is the right term because I'm not, wasn't as close to it. But basically, he was not selected to be the CEO at Disney, even though he was very much a front runner. It was given to another longtime vet, Bob Chapik, who was there. And then at that moment, he kind of lunged at this like huge thing and like ride a comet to the moon kind of thing with TikTok. But then very quickly, you know, he found out, like, wait a minute, I'm in the crosshairs of the federal government. Yeah. I'm now somehow the face of China among the American, you know, right, uh, right, right, right. Uh, you know, whatever, intelligentsia, business community, whatever you want to talk about. Do I want to be the face of China? <laughs> and, you know, he ba- – and yeah. then, of course, he got from, – from the, from the sounds of it, he got sort of um, – you know, he had an end run around him in these negotiations where people were going – Directly to well, they were negotiating with the parent company, right? Because it is the parent parent. company who's selling selling TikTok. This this is a guy who, like, you know, grew the Walt Disney Company. You know what I mean? It's like he's this is not some chump, right? So you don't just go around this guy. Yeah, for sure. And I think the combination of those things just basically made him bail after three months. But you know, what does that guy do? You know, next, and how does that look for him? Well, it's not just yeah for him. I'm sure first of all he's gonna be fine, right? The guy's great experience. I always worry about the wrong people. Yeah, he's gonna be more than fine. I do think going back to what we were talking about earlier, like what is the impact to TikTok? What is the impact to the growth roadmap to the future of what TikTok could be? And I did think when I heard about him getting brought on board, I was pretty excited of what it meant for TikTok going forward, especially as it relates to original content and really leveling up the types of things, the type of content experiences that TikTok was doing. So without that, you know, who wants to take that job now, right? I mean, this thing has to get, obviously get settled and sold, et cetera, and, and depending what version of it. But And to your point, they didn't backfill his role. They did I mean, not, they, no. They, so, they left uh, the general manager. Vanessa, who we, we've met and we've right. actually talked that's to, right? right? So she she was, I'm, I'm blanking her last name. Pa- Pappas. Pappas, there you go, yeah. sorry. Um, so yeah, they're not filling in that role because they're basically trying to figure out if they're going to sell this thing or not, right? So there's no reason to fill, backfill that role right now. But I do think it, it definitely impacts. And more importantly, it creates opportunity for everybody else to catch up, to to start filling in those gaps to whatever to degree possible. And I'm sure even now Instagram has gotten some benefit. People that are concerned that TikTok is going to go away any any day now, some of those are probably using some of the, the real products. I think Trillers has gotten Maybe benefit of that. Well. I mean, I mean, frankly, other, when it was banned in India, those guys were hyping the fact that it's like, hey, we're still available in India. Yeah, like They yeah, were really exactly. kind of riding that, that sure. publicity. Uh, that, that alternate, right? So, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, let, 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 let's do our kind of quick bottom lines on TikTok, and then we'll we'll just spend a couple minutes here talking on the burgers part of the, the episode. But for me, the bottom line is I think – and I think we agree on most of this, if not all of this – rare point of consensus, which is good. But I think we agree that it's bad when when the government gets involved in enterprise, yeah. particularly the executive branch, because that can be a very personality-driven thing. So I think we agree on the fact that it's bad. I think that, that the idea of national security is interesting to think about it, that it can become a broader context at some point in time, because it's not just about you know bombs and bullets, it's about other things. Um, and I think TikTok is forcing that that consideration. And I think, look, the losers in this case in, in terms of around the horn, I mean, it's it's hard to say at this moment, but I can't imagine like TikTok being in the, in the same position from a consumer standpoint or a stronger one coming out of this. I think worst case, there's some diluted kind of neutered, to use your word, which is a great word, neutered version of the company that gets yeah. sort of fed into these other larger ecosystems. And it becomes a really cool thing, but it's probably used mostly for marketing or something. I don't know. And that's whatever. And then from a consumer standpoint, also kind of like a Mm, meh, you know what I mean? So I, I think probably this is net bad for for TikTok post all of this sort of rigmarole. That's my guess. I what think it's you? net bad for the industry. It's net bad for the user. Um, I have a really, really uh, hard time really supporting an executive order as a mechanism to try to regulate industry, right? This is why you have policy. So it's not that I'm against government regulating or creating policies that regulate business. It happens all the time, right? and it's supposed to happen, it's around, especially around, we talked about COPA earlier, right? Uh, those are all policies, regulations of how business is supposed to operate. But when you use executive order, I have an issue with that because I feel like that is too dependent right now with personalities. It, it does, in my mind, sort of replace any kind of protocol process, and it becomes a very targeted thing, thing to just one company, or really, we should be. If a concern is data security, then those are policies that are applicable to everyone, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to address that across the board. And now, if someone is not being a good player in the process, then that's what those policies are there for, not to target it, go go after an individual company, because I think that's a way to try to dictate and influence now sort of uh, international uh, relations, uh, but using company as leverage to 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 basically get what you want to get. Fair enough. Okay, so we'll leave that where where it is. I do think that you know, subject matter for a future episode is definitely going to be about 
you know, regulation, what the government's involvement is on social platforms, because even though I'm not a fan of this, um, you know, politically or ideologically, I do think that these platforms are probably headed towards regulation. Net neutrality is a huge one, and, right? So that's yeah. a great example of one. So we'll leave that for, for, for where it's at. All right, so let's change gears here and go to um, the next part of the episode, which is our burgers commentary. Very different subject, but one that I think is really timely, certainly from the from the lens of diversity. And this is a multi-million, actually a billion dollar, billion dollar yeah. lawsuit that was brought by um, black um, franchisees of McDonald's Corporation against the parent company with respect to their claims of racism systematically for a number of years. Right. So, you know, according to the claim that just got filed for a billion dollars, 52 ex-franchisees and ex-black franchisees basically claimed there was racial discrimination um, against McDonald's, right? And part of this is is really a, a combination of things. One is they claim they were forced to close or sell more than 200 McDonald's locations because of this systematic and covert racial discrimination. Uh, according to that report, the, the number of black-owned uh, McDonald's locations is now 186, down from 377 just in 1998. So it's a, it's a pretty significant drop. And just Do we know why, by the way? I was, in, in the research that I was doing, I'm not sure if I came across a reason why. Well, they, why that drop? Why that? Well, th- yeah, that's basically what this lawsuit is all about, right? So the why, the reason they're saying this is this is the case. First of all, they described um, that for black franchisees acquiring McDonald's location is was almost equivalent of financial suicide. Now, the reasons they gave is one is on average the sales for the locations that black franchisees owners had relative to others, I think specifically Angles, about two million dollars per year, which is about seven hundred thousand lower. Than the average between 2011 2016, or or actually even even lower at the uh, on 2019 it was a 2.9 million. Now part of this was for a number of reasons. One is they they claim and once again these are all claims that are in the lawsuits right. So of course for all of this allegedly these allegedly. are all allegedly. So big big disclaimer right. But they claim as part of the lawsuit that. McDonald's restricted black franchisees from owning locations that bring in that basically uh, that, that bring in less money, right? So older stores with higher insurance and higher security costs. So basically, bringing in black franchisees to only operate locations where they were basically harder to run. Uh, the other thing is they, they they claim that they excluded black franchisees from growth opportunities, newer, more desirable locations, and really primarily giving those to the to other other franchisees owners. And also deploying targeted, rigorous, and unreasonable inspection, which basically forced a number of these black franchisees out of business. And then forcing black franchisees to sell stores at a loss by controlling which franchisees are presented as qualified buyers. So is this combination of a higher threshold to operate because of higher security and insurance costs in, in areas where just the revenue that will be generated for, for these McDonald's was just lower than the average across the nation. And then these, what they're claimed to be very rigorous and, un- and unnecessary or unreasonable sort of ongoing inspection that basically force people out, which the net result in their mind is, was the, basically this drop of, of ownership by about 200 uh, 200 McDonald's locations. Now, Chris uh, Kemzinski, who's the CEO of McDonald's, has in the last day or so vehemently, he's come out vehemently denying all of these uh, claims, although at the same time um, acknowledging that they need to do a lot more for black owners and that kind of thing. So it was a very qualified, very politically astute kind of answer, but he was basically saying no, like to the point about restricting the black franchisees from owning specific locations. He says, we don't restrict anybody from owning any location. We make them all available, yada, yada. So I think, you know, part of this is interesting because we're talking about, you know, a a long period of time, right? Um, Because I think that the, uh, I think you mentioned it, right? This covers a period of time. From 1998. From 1998, right? So whatever that is, 20 plus years. Um, So it's a long time and things may have changed from time to time. Actually, this CEO that they have right now has only been on the job for a little bit, right? So yeah, and the, the part that even – there was one, I think, a line that I read on there that they claim that once you look at an aggregate number, it actually hasn't changed much. So there is even discrepancy in terms of the number and who's reporting what. But if we look at this, these numbers from at face value and you're saying that over the last you know, 20 years, there's been a drop about half of the number of locations that are owned by black franchisees or, or you know, black entre- entrepreneurs – that just there's a problem there if that's the case, right? Like there is no reason why you know I can't think of a reason why you will see that kind of massive drop in 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 ownership uh, by entrepreneurs of a specific sector, if especially if that's not the case across the board, right? If if it's different from what or what it's a very doing. interesting backdrop for this, right? Because you yeah. can make a case it's like, wait, how does this thing get cut in half in twenty years? 
if there's not something a bit nefarious afoot, right? So, right. Well, that's the, the most interesting question in this for me. Is think, like, think about this, right? We, we were talking about this in one of our previous episodes, and you know, we were talking about this in the context of these work share spaces, and especially where you're in uh, for those, especially for those that are being run by diverse entrepreneurs that are in these. Opportunity zones. Opportunity zones, right? And one of the things that we talked about is that even when the rules are the same, right, the challenge is that many of these folks just don't have the same level of backing, financial, legal, et cetera, to be able to weather the storms when things happen, right? So in my mind, I'm, I'm sure there's some of that going on here as well, right, where some of these entrepreneurs that are owners of this location. Now, in franchisees, it happens, I think, quite a bit where people try to own multiple locations, but if you go back and, and then start analyzing what level of financial, legal support these folks have uh, to be able to weather the storm, and if in any way they're being restricted or better yet, encouraged or directed to just opportunity zones or areas where maybe the financials of those of those, those stores is just not as, as lucrative as it will be in other cases, that's a really bad combination, especially if there's higher security costs, insurance costs, which they, they bring up here. So I can see how that happens. The, the, the tricky thing about it, which goes back to your provocative question, is that, but if you don't have people going into the location, that means you're not bringing these businesses that do benefit the community, these services that people want to basically be able to consume in these same opportunity zones where people can benefit from or, the business, but, but then you, you basically tack on that the risk is just so much higher. Or imagine the gentrification backlash if it's other communities, they're moving into these opportunity well, zones. Yeah. It's like, so there's a little bit of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Um, and I, I look, here in LA, by the way, that's been, there's been history of that, right? That's the, when, when we had the, uh, the, the LA riots uh, because of uh, Rodney King. Early 90s, yeah. Early 90s, like one of the big issues that, that came up was this sort of this, this tension between the Korean community, uh, the you know American Korean community and the black community here because of a lot of the ownership of these liquor stores in all of these, like, you know, kind of the ghetto, like, these, like, yeah, black, these, these, yeah. These, these areas and a lot, of, a lot of the ownership of these liquor stores with Korean. So completely agree with you. That's sort of the, the other side of this. It becomes pretty, you know, pretty complicated. Look, I'm, I'm generally speaking a believer that where there's, there's smoke, there's fire somewhere. Now, the fire may have already gone out, but you're seeing the sort of the, you know, the, the leftovers from, from, the, from the conflagration. But I do think that there's something very curious about the rate of these black-owned McDonald's, how precipitously it dropped over a relatively short period of time, right? You're talking about these things are not owned for six months at a time. They're right. owned for years and years. And so there's something there that I would like a better explanation around. And there's also, you know, in these class action things, you have a lot of people that agree with certain things, right? So it, this isn't so much about one guy or two guys. We're talking about like dozens of people who all have yeah. similar experiences. And 52 I think, to be exact, by the way. 52, right. So yeah. four dozen, right. So um, so we have, you know, a lot of people. And I think that, you know, that I, based on what I've read, there's there's plenty of smoke in terms of what could have happened there. Now, um, where it goes, I don't know, because I think that the position that McDonald's has taken is pretty clear that their rules don't say this and don't do this. So I don't know what that's going to ultimately mean. But I think that the idea, you know, to answer kind of the provocative question from my perspective, I think it's generally a good thing for different communities to see their own advancing in their own places, right? So being owners of the businesses, um, being promoted within them, um, uh, you know, opening multiple locations, you know, businesses that are born and bred in these communities. You and I actually just recently met, um, you know, I'll, I won't mention the company right now, but we met, uh, you know, owners of a company that was basically born and bred here in Inglewood. And, yeah. you know, this is a diverse owned business that saw an opportunity and built something that's become a bit of a you know, of, of, a, of a sensation in a small, you know, area or audience area. But nevertheless, part of what they talk about is the fact that, like, they didn't see their kids, their families being featured in the way that other of these, you know, particular audiences that they're involved in were being featured. So they went out and did it on their own. Generally speaking, I think that's a good thing. And so I would say that I'd want more of, you know, um, owners and, and leaders from these communities to be in charge of enterprises in them. Uh, and I think that's a good thing for everybody involved. What uh, I guess, what responsibility do you then place on like the corporation, like a McDonald's, to assure that they do have the right level of representation? Or when they see a trend like this, where once again, assuming that the data is correct, right? Because we haven't, other than what was actually reported, and as part of this lawsuit is, but assuming that that data is correct, what responsibility do you think that they have to change that trend? Which may actually mean 
taking proactive steps to actively go and recruit black entrepreneurs or other diverse entrepreneurs to actually take on this place because then the challenge you get you run into pretty quickly is like, well, is this then the you know a reverse discrimination, right? Where you're not necessarily getting the most qualified person or the person that has the best sort of you know financial backing, but the person that the kind of people that you want to bring on to basically better represent the community that you ultimately are trying to serve. I think every company in the country has a with respect to diverse Talent and opportunities has a sourcing problem, meaning everybody agrees, yeah, we need to do all these great things. And then when you ask them, okay, what's the second step after you've agreed that you want to do it? A lot of them just don't know. They don't know where the diverse candidates are, where the diverse entrepreneurs is. If you're a nonprofit, you don't know where the, 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 the people of color who could be donors. You don't know how to diversify your donor pool. You don't, you don't know any of these things, where to put your next store, how to put them in these communities. So there's this like desire and then a lack of being able to take the second step. And from my standpoint, a lot of that is being connected to the sources of those opportunities. So, you know, again, being connected with, um, you know, historically black, black colleges or diverse organizations, grassroots ones, to be able to actually connect with people at the at the sourcing level for a thousand and one reasons. So I think McDonald's has the obligation to get better about, to your point, identifying, sourcing, however you want to define that, but getting closer to these communities in every single way that they that they can and to make that a mission critical thing. And I'm sure that if they were here, they'd say, we have done that, we are doing that, right? But I think everybody needs to do more of that. I think the other thing is, they need to emphasize, and every business in America does too, needs to emphasize the transparency of the options that exist. So for example, if I'm coming in and have interest in buying a McDonald's franchise, I want to see the full spectrum of things. I want to understand all the opportunities, including the opportunities in historically, you know, more marginalized communities. What's the good, what's the pros and cons? Like, let's regain some of our agency Let's put some of the political correctness stuff aside and be able to speak intelligently about, hey, this is a situation where there hasn't been a McDonald's here for a long time. There's, you know, yes, the zip code may have different challenges, but here's the upside of that. The upside is X, Y, Z, D. And for this, for the right entrepreneur, this can be an incredible opportunity. Like we need to be able to have the transparency and the agency to speak about these things, I think, in an honest and clear way to give people the right the choice to make whatever decision that they want, right? Yeah, no, and, I, I and agree. I think all businesses can do something like that. You know, when I when I see this case, you know, beyond the fact that it's obviously a legal case, it's going to get obviously hopefully worked out one way or the other. Is it still they'll speak to the massive opportunity of better having better representation of diverse people, but it's specifically in leadership positions, right? Because the the one thing that I, I I'm sure if you went and did a survey, and I'm sure there's data out there already, we just don't have it in front of us of what kind of representation there is in McDonald's as a whole, meaning all employees, whether they just work in the McDonald's, whether they're part of a own an operative store, or in their case, McDonald's, like the majority, like 95% plus, give or take, are franchise-run uh, stores. If you did an overall survey, I'm sure you maybe find that for African Americans, they probably will do okay, I'm guessing here, right? But it's when you when you do that double-click and then look at some of these leadership, leadership positions of actual owning, of actually running these franchises that I'm sure there's still a pretty massive gap. And, and when you see this kind of, of um, you know, reversal of, of, of having this kind of ownership by these entrepreneurs, it's a problem. I think it's a problem that whether or not McDonald's would agree to the fact, like this, obviously the claims that, that are being made here, I hope they're, they're using this opportunity to really look themselves in the mirror and, and see what can they do from their side to better create the, the sort of the pipeline, the opportunities to have the right, right kind of representation because ultimately that's going to benefit their end product and their end consumer by having more, more of those people represented at those, at those leadership roles. 100%. They do have, McDonald's has published their own statistics on how they're doing with respect to uh, gender and diversity uh, balance. And I'm looking at the stats here on, on gender, uh, you know, all staff, um, about a 54, 46% female to male representation. When you look at the director and officer level, the female representation drops 40% and then 28% respectively. So, um, you know, but they do, I don't see the stats on diversity, but I have heard generally speaking good things about McDonald's in terms of representation in the managerial and officer ranks with respect to the, uh, you know, diverse um, people. So I think, and, and I don't have the stats here, but but I've heard generally speaking good things about it. But I do think that when it comes to like, again, um, what you mentioned, right, sort of, uh, you know, investing in looking for, uh, you know, leaders and and sourcing this talent. I think it's it's a really important thing for everybody to do. And I I've, I'm constantly surprised by 
it's not a simple solve, but how consistent that's a challenge for everyone that we talk to, right? Is this idea of, I get I need to do something, but it's sort of where do I begin? I was yeah. talking to somebody this morning, and it was the same thing. It was like, look, this the whole situation going on in the country right now um, with everything, you know, from, from a race standpoint, diverse standpoint has got us thinking and we're doing a lot of self-assessment and reflection and we're committed to X, Y, Z, D. And I was like, that's awesome. And like, so how's that going? Like, what are you doing right. about that? And it's, it's not there. It's well, not it's being hardened. Supp- yeah, being supportive, being committed, and actually doing something, those are night and day things, right? Yeah. Uh, you could be supportive and, and, um, and committed, but not do a single thing that actually makes that big of a difference versus actually putting something in place. I'll give you a quick example because, you know, uh, when I was, um, you know, I spent about nine, as you know, Charlie, I spent about nine years working for Univision in a number of different executive roles. Uh, at the time, Univision, and I'm sure they are still now, but they were part of the NAB, which is the National Association of Broadcasters, right? Uh, one particular year, I was nominated by Univision to be part of this program that the NAB will have every year, a 10-month program where we will go to D.C. every single month for one weekend. And the purpose of the program was to try to prepare diverse people uh, in the industry for ownership, for ownership of, of broadcast stations, Right. And what was really interesting about that is within that 10-week, I'm sorry, the 10-month process, uh, we basically spent a lot of time flying back and forth to D.C., really learning all the ins and outs of what it required, what, what it takes to actually acquire stations, how to finance it, how to evaluate it, how to look at opportunities, how to set up a team. And I found it really interesting because it wasn't about basically picking people that you're just going to hand them a, like, here's a station, you go run it because then people are not necessarily prepared to do that, but it was about giving people the right tools so when the opportunity came up, when there was an opportunity with another station was going to be up for grabs, that you had more diverse people out there with the right tools, now back on experience, and more important, access to resources to be able to actually have the opportunity, not just to acquire, but to be successful in acquiring those stations. And to me, that's a perfect example of a program that is not, is, is not taking shortcuts, is not trying to reward people for not doing the work, but just simply trying to fill in the gap and giving people the right experience, the right tools, so they can be successful. They can be able to, to basically impact uh, more diverse people owning stations. So to me, that's a great example of a program. Like I have no idea whether, you know, in the case of McDonald's or any of these other kind of franchise businesses have this, but if they don't, like that's the kind of program that I would say you want to look at because that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about just, just handing things off to people because that's the other thing too. You don't want to just sort of refill back that 200 stores that were lost with people that really have no experience, have their their likelihood of success is so diminished because they don't have the backing, they don't have the experience, they don't have the background, they don't have the, the network. That's a problem too, right? That's nothing good will come from that. But it's about how do you help them be able to get to that point so when the opportunity is there, they could actually be successful. Yeah, I think we can definitely uh, end the show in agreement on that score. And I think what a lot of our recent work has shown us which ends up coming back to just one of the master lessons that we were learning about all this, is the more diverse your company makeup is and the more that you prioritize diversity of all kinds within the ranks of your company, the more you tend to look you know, positively and with you know, great opportunity at the questions that uh, – of at these kinds of questions, right? right. At, and at these kinds of communities. Because but the, well, but they're, the, not, but they're not scary, right? When you, they're you, not scary, you, you, you right. get those questions. But the farther away you are from them, the less integrated the organization is, the more these things are going to be dealt with at arm's length and the less opportunity that can be realized. And I think that's part and parcel to the work that we're always talking to people about is really discovering the potential that diversity can bring from a revenue standpoint, from a growth standpoint, from a profit standpoint. And I think the way to really understand that is to actually make the inside increasingly like the outside with every passing day. So, all right. Well, good show. Thank you very much, Jesus. So I think our bottom line on uh, TikTok and burgers. Uh, yeah, I think we said it, right? With TikTok, we you know don't like the meddling, under, understand why it's happened. Um, I think there's other ways to actually be able to, to get that same point, the same point. And as it relates to the McDonald's situation, like the, the unfortunate part is that regardless of whether or not they're right or wrong about about this, you know, the, the claims that they're making is that in any scenario where you see that kind of drop in diverse leadership uh, of, of running these stores, ultimately both McDonald's and consumers lose, right? So I, I hope that's one of the outcomes that comes out of this is more investment about creating those opportunities of the pipelines for have more diverse representation in the ownership of these of these locations. Well said. Thank you for listening, everybody. This has been the episode TikTok and Burgers from the Diversity Remix. Uh, 
from your hosts, Charlie Echeverry and Jesus Chavez. And we'll look forward to seeing you guys uh, next week. In the meantime, um, make sure you tell your friends about this podcast. If you have any suggestions on uh, any topics or uh, uh, concerns or questions, please feel free to reach out to us at blackbrown.us and we'll be happy to get back to you. Thanks again for listening. We'll be in touch soon. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.